You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast, the News and Observer's political podcast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me are Will Doran, Don Vaughn, Colin Campbell, and Brian Murphy on the phone from Washington, D.C. So the candidate filing period is about to start after months of talking about who might run in 2020. Uh, We're about to find out who's actually running. So after the Thanksgiving holiday, candidates will start putting in their names officially. Um, In the legislature, we will uh, see some pretty big changes. A number of people who, first of all, are not running. So um, Will, Don, uh, who's out? Which incumbents are not going to run this time around? Um, State Senator Floyd McKissick from Durham is finally officially out. He kind of had a very extensive long goodbye (laughs) torn out process um, once he was nominated to the Utilities Commission and had the farewell, you know, session on the floor, but then still wouldn't say officially. Finally, yesterday, he did. He is actually out, um, and he's already got uh, multiple people that, that want his seat. Um, that's, a, you know, big-time blue district, so it'll be another um, another Democrat to, to fill the seat. So that's that's one thing that, that won't really change other than the, the person in the seat, um, Democrat. And there yeah. could be a primary for his seat, right? Uh, yes, there's... Uh, Natalie Murdoch, Pierce Freelon. Um, I've heard of others that are interested in it. Um, Freelon, who ran unsuccessfully for Durham mayor in 2017, got the current mayor, Steve Schulz, endorsement um, just last week, I think. So um, this is heating up, even though um, course filing doesn't start until Monday. On the Republican side, we saw uh, Representative Deborah Conrad mm-hmm. announced that she wasn't going to be seeking re-election, and then um, uh, Two, uh, two of the more, I'd say probably more moderate uh, Republicans as well, Chuck McGrady and Rick Gunn, have also said that uh, they won't be seeking re-election. And then, you know, obviously we have several people who, um, you know, are, are, have been floating that they're going to not run for the legislature again, but that's because they're going to be running for other offices. Obviously, um, Holly Grange is planning on running in the Republican primary for governor. Um, we There's a... A few Democrats uh, who are running in the lieutenant governor's race. I, I that primary in the lieutenant governor's race on both sides, the Democrat and the Republican, is just going to be packed. Um, well, especially because you now have an incumbent council of state member running on the Republican side for lieutenant governor, who is not the lieutenant governor, right. um, which is <laughs> very unusual. And we've got um, so it's Chaz Mark- Beasley in the House um, and Terry Van Dyne in the Senate that are that are running. And then when in Conrad's statement yesterday or announcement that she wasn't running, she said um, to concentrate was like concentrate on business and politics. So that could mean she's running for something else. It could mean she is going to, who knows what, you know, it's like something political. But usually if they're leaving, they don't say leaving and then mention politics again. And then on the Republican side, Mark Johnson is running uh, for lieutenant governor instead of running for another turn as, term as superintendent of public instruction. And we're still waiting for uh, all the chips to fall from that on the Republican side of the superintendent race. A number of people have said they're thinking about getting in now that there's no incumbent in the race. Yeah, we've, uh, we've heard that uh, uh, Representative Craig Horn might uh, jump into that race. Uh, a lot of names have been floated around. Um, 
And obviously back in the Lieutenant Governor's race, you also have former Congresswoman Renee Elmer saying that, uh, you know, she might be running as well. So uh, a lot of very jam-packed primaries that we're going to see in March. Um, I think a lot of people are moving up from the local level, too, for, um, for you know, Johnson's job. Keith Sutton, who's on the Wake County School Board, is running. Um, Christine Kushner on the school board is running. Jessica Holmes on county commissioners is running for um, labor commissioner. So there's a lot of people taking somewhat expected that stuff from local to state politics. And have you seen any notable names uh, for new legislative candidates, either challenging incumbents or running for some of these open seats now? You've seen a few people starting to announce, um, you know, I, I don't know if there's anyone who's, you know, necessarily a very famous person uh, who's going to be running, although please correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, there are obviously 170 seats uh, <laughs> to keep an eye on. I, I think I saw uh, you know, a couple of the candidates who ran last time around and, and didn't win are going to try again now that um, for some Democrats, they might have a little more favorable seats. So Dan Bessie's name um, was floated, I think, for Deborah Conrad's seat. Uh, I'm not sure who else. I think uh, there's going to be a Democratic primary for the uh, the Alamance seat that Rick Gunn is vacating. Um, and I know from having talked to Democrats in the past that Alamance County is a place where they're definitely going to be focusing in 2020. I'm excited about the um, filing day. It's like, summer second, yay! <laughs> because like it'll be like, who's going to run? You Christmas know? comes early. I know, and like of course there'll be like the like, people on the first day all excited and filing, and then like the people do it last minute, and I bet we'll find out some people that you think are going to run again that aren't, and then you know these random last minute candidates that somebody's like, oh, you should run, and then they try. So Don hasn't I'm been excited. beaten down yet by the political state <laughs> politics beat, which is great. I'm excited. Um, <laughs> I had FOMO with the last municipal election since I covered local government for a while, and the, like the state wasn't yet, so I've been like excited waiting for state filing. Yeah, well, Don, you're going to be very excited because we're probably actually going to have two different filing opening dates because you know we have the December second for most races, but we're not going to have that for the congressional it's races. It's like double Christmas. It's double Christmas. <laughs> right. So it will depend on whether uh, what the judges do on the morning of filing day. Nothing like putting it right up to the deadline. Um, but uh, the judges who are looking at these new districts um, are going to meet at 9 a.m. Filing opens at noon, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's guess it's possible that the judges could hear all the, uh, uh, the latest arguments and, and decide um, within three hours to say the maps are okay and they can go ahead, which doesn't give people a whole lot of time to make any final decisions. But I suppose they could also um, say no, go back to the drawing board and... Um, draw some new maps, or they could say we are going to uh, draw new maps. Um, so um, everything's kind of going to depend on what happens that morning. Yeah, and I mean, really, what happens that morning is going to depend, or is going to decide probably whether or not we get the congressional primaries on the same day in March as all of the rest of the primaries in the state for president, for governor, for everything, or if they get moved back uh, to a date later in the year. Um, a lot of the people in politics in the state, really on both sides, don't like that because if you have the later primaries on just kind of some random day for only this one particular office of Congress, turnout gets really, really low. Uh, I, I think in 2016, when they had a similar situation, it was single-digit turnout for those races. Um, just people are not paying attention, not interested uh, because, you know, 
presidential primaries already happened and everyone kind of, you know, moves on to paying attention to the general election or maybe taking a little break from <laughs> paying attention to politics until the summer when they have to start paying attention again with the general election. But um, yeah, I mean, so this hearing is going to be December 2nd on these congressional maps and it'll really be a very short period of time that, you know, in order to basically have these congressional primaries in March, just in terms of, you know, the deadlines for filing for the Board of Elections to be able to print the ballots, things like that. It's going to be really a matter of days. So is it the same legislative, the same panel of judges that have already signed off on the legislative maps? Correct. Um, and so um, why do you think they're taking another look at the congressional maps? Is there any reason to think that their decision will be different? Is there anything different about these maps um, than the redrawn ones on the state legislative side that might lead to a different decision? Yeah, it's notable in a couple of ways. Um, with the legislative maps, obviously, there was an official court ruling that the judges ordered saying you have to do this with X amount of transparency, you have to do this without using you know, certain types of political data. That was not in place for the congressional map redrawing. It was not an official court order. It was just kind of a suggestion from the court telling them, hey, like we're probably going to rule these maps unconstitutional if this does go to trial, so... If y'all want to just go ahead and redraw them before trial, that would be smart. Uh, legislature got the hint and did that, um, but you know they didn't have to do so, you know, using all of the same rules and everything like that that they had to with the legislative maps. So if the other side can, you know, kind of point to instances where they think that the partisan gerrymandering still exists, was still put in place during this most recent process, then. Um, yeah, there's, there's probably a little bit more, more breathing room for a challenge than there was with the legislative maps. The key date that we need to keep an eye on, the key date is December 15th. All my reporting indicates that um, as long as they get the new maps in place by December 15th, that they'll be able to um, keep the same filing deadline. Now, the December date uh, that we keep talking about is only um, the beginning of filing. The filing period doesn't end until December 20th. Um, all of the indications are that as long as they can get the maps put together by December 15th, uh, that would leave enough time for people to file in that five-day period uh, to keep the primaries on March 3rd. Um, and so that leaves enough time for the court to, to, to pick, you know, put, put about a 10-day period on to say, no, we need to redraw these maps, or there's a special master that needs to redraw these maps, or you need to go tweak this or that. It gives them about 10 days, 10 business days. Uh, before the 15th. So that, that's a, another date you should keep an eye on. And Brian, if these maps do stick, uh, what kinds of swing districts? We talked about uh, swing districts in the legislature um, a little bit, and, and uh, it seems like there's no swing districts for Congress, right? Right. According to the, 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 the plaintiffs in this case, they've put together a chart that showed that all of these 13 districts are sort of outlier districts. Uh, they, they took the maps that were produced by Joey Chen, um, he's a, a political professor, a professor of political science at the University of Michigan, and his map was actually used as the base map for the state legislative districts. Uh, he ran simulations of a thousand different maps that would work, um, and, and almost all of the maps, all of the districts that the, the state lawmakers chose in this congressional drawing fall to the, to the extreme outliers of those thousand maps. Um, and so what you have is, is eight Republican districts and five Democratic districts. Um, and that's it. I mean, there's very little chance of any of them flipping. I think there's one district, Richard Hudson in the eighth, um, that is less than 
that falls between 45 and 55 percent Democratic vote. It was done on a Democratic vote basis, but um, all of the other districts are over 55 percent, which makes it very likely that a Democrat would win, or under 45 percent, which makes it very likely that a Republican would would win in this case. So there are very few swing districts. Um, I think if the if this map holds, the the biggest races we're going to have are in the primaries. Um, the primary in the new sixth should attract a lot of Democrats. The primary in the new two second district should attract a lot of Democrats. And then I think the most interesting decisions on the Republican side would come, you know, what does Mark Walker do? His district, the sixth district, um, now just includes Guilford County and a bit of Forsyth. Uh, it's a heavily Democratic district. He's already putting out that that as many as 53% of his voters end up in Ted Budd's district. Um, so it's possible that he could run in, in Ted Budd's district. He could run against another incumbent. Um, it, it will be very interesting to see if this map holds, and there's no guarantee that it will, um, you know, what, what Mark Walker does and what kind of trickle-down effects that has on, on other candidates or other, you know, other candidates, other, other Congress members out there. And then I think that the biggest uh, thing that we would keep an eye on is, is that newly created second district in, in Raleigh or in Wake County. You know, how many Democrats get into that race? There's already three candidates running. Uh, one, Scott Cooper, has raised almost half a million dollars at this point. Um, but now that that district is going to be a heavy Democratic district, I would expect a lot more candidates to file. And Will mentioned the primary from a uh, very low turnout primary from a few years back. Um, we might see another repeat of that then where there was a um, two different incumbents who were basically double bunked and having to go up against each other. Yeah, the Elmers and uh, Holding Fight was a bloodbath a few years ago. It a ton was. of money rolling into that, some really uh, not so nice attacks on each other, and I think you might see a repeat of that. Yeah, and I mean, George Holding's another one to watch, like, like you said, Colin, he primaried Renee Elmers in 2016 after he basically got double bunked with uh, David Price in that district, and you know, obviously- The one I'm watching there, uh, Holding, uh, the Holding Banking family originally comes from Johnston County, which is the seventh district, which is David Rouser's district. Rouser is one of North Carolina's, I think, less prominent, less visible congressmen. You don't see him in the news a whole lot. Um, so I think if Holding went that route, I wouldn't be surprised if he, you know, turned his attention a little bit east and decided to run the seventh. Holding's made it somewhat clear in conversations with me and, and other reporters up here that um, he, he may not run. Uh, if there's not a district for him to run in, he may not run. He thinks that you should live... Uh, this is what he told me that, that you should at least live in the county, uh, one of the counties that's included in the district. So, uh, you know, county lines are a little funky sometimes in these districts. So um, he may not live in exactly in the district, um, but felt that you should at least live in one of the counties that's represented in the district. Obviously, Wake County um, is going to be split between two districts under the current maps that passed. Uh, one of those is David Price's very Democratic district. The other one is going to be an all Wake County district, which looks like is also going to be Democratic. Uh, you know, Holding was pretty clear that he said um, nobody's entitled to these seats, uh, which was a, a different approach than a lot of the, the other sitting lawmakers have taken. Who, who have we heard might run in these new uh, Democratic-leaning districts in Wake County and uh, the Triad? I have not heard anyone officially say that. I, I talked to Kathy Manning, who who ran, who raised a lot of money and ran a race against Ted Budd in the 13th district last time. Uh, she said she's considering it. I've talked to some sitting members who say they're hearing from lots and lots of different people, um, but nobody's quite ready to to jump in just yet um, because uh, the, you know the courts could could throw these districts out um, pretty quickly here. And in Wake County, you have a ton of Democrats who could pop in that are in the legislature and other places. Um, 
I've heard Deborah Ross, former U.S. candidate, mentioned as a possibility, but like Brian said, no one's really come out and formally said, hey, I'm interested or hey, I'm running because uh, it's sort of too soon to, to take that step. You talked to a couple of people, Colin, who uh, uh, are have already been run, are running and have already been running, um, even when it was against holding. And so if somebody new comes into the race, I assume that they will uh, possibly um, take umbrage at somebody kind of getting in late when they yeah, know that a Democrat is going to win this thing. Yeah, one of the more, I guess, well-known for current politics in the NC2 race right now is Monica Johnson Hostler, who is a, a Wake County School Board member. Uh, and she issued a statement basically saying, hey, I was in this race when it was tough. Uh, my goal has always been to, you know, defeat George Holding and get a, a Democrat in that seat. Um, and I'm definitely staying in the race. Um, so I think you'll, you'll see some of that. And then, as Brian mentioned, Scott Cooper has raised nearly half a million dollars, but his house actually uh, is in Wake Forest, and that is in David Price's district under the proposed map. So he would have to decide, does he want to run in a district that doesn't include his house, um, or does he switch races or anything like that? Um, and it sounded like he's not really made a decision yet. We talked about the primaries. Um, just what happened in, in NC3, I think, is a good indication in the special election uh, to replace uh, Walter Jones earlier this year, we saw a, a house divided. It was a it's a heavy, heavy Republican district. The real fight was in the primary where, um, you know, a, a lot of people took the side of Greg Murphy, who ended up winning. But a lot of Republicans came in behind um, and her name is escaping me right now at, at the moment. Um, a, a lot Joan Perry, a lot of a lot of Republicans came in behind Joan Perry in that race. And so the, there was a real fight, a lot of money spent, a real fight in the Republican primary. I think we could see that in on the Democratic side in in some of these districts. I think we could see that in the Republican side, as mentioned, if it's Ted Budd against Mark Walker or something similar. I think we could see a lot of money being spent um, on both sides of, of that kind of race in the primaries. It looks like the legislature is protecting some of its former members, though, since Greg Murphy has uh, got a district that's pretty similar to the one he's in now. And Dan Bishop, same thing. He just won uh, in the ninth district, and his new district would be also pretty similar. The ninth yeah, district I'm, does lose Bladen County, though. So, uh, you know, for, for yeah, everyone who remembers. If McCray Dallas is uh, <laughs> a free man and is able to help you with your campaign, you. Uh, He'll be working on a different race. Where, where, where will he be uh, located? Where will Bladen be located? That would be that gets moved to the seventh, uh, which is represented by David Rouser. That district that stretches from Johnston County down to Wilmington. One thing I'll be interested in seeing. I don't know that there's much uh, the legislature could have done with Murphy's district. It has to cover a lot of territory there in the east because of of population um, concerns. One thing I'll be interested to see if the court does is with the eighth and the ninth district. Uh, both of those districts, the ninth is represented by Dan Bishop now, the eighth is represented by Richard Hudson. Uh, both of those districts run east to west, um, and, and they cover a lot of territory. Hudson's district, for example, goes from like Concord all the way to Fayetteville. Um, you could make those districts a lot more compact if you split them north-south, and, and I'll be interested to see if the court takes up um, or if the court has problems with those districts, both running east-west, as opposed to both of them running north-south, which would make them much more compact, but would change the politics of, of both of them. All right. Um, now, we've also got uh, a presidential campaign in full swing as we uh, get ready for the primary. And the latest candidate who's going to visit is uh, Pete Buttigieg. Um, Don, uh, he's going to Reverend William Barber's church in Goldsboro. Um, and so what does that signify about what he's trying to do and what the presidential candidates are trying to do in this race? 
Um, well, you couldn't find a more high-profile pastor in the entire state than Reverend Barber. I don't think there's anyone more famous than him in the state and beyond. I think Franklin Graham might disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he is. Yeah, on the Democratic side, on Franklin Democratic Graham, is, side. Graham is not going to be endorsing Buttigieg anytime soon. No. <laughs> <laughs> but on the Democratic side, absolutely. All right. Fine. I mean, it's not Billy Graham. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, as far, well, I guess, yeah, and more politically active, I suppose the grants are too. Um, anyway, getting Barber's Church is, is kind of, is a, is a get, you know, but, um, so Barber announced it um, really in a tweet and a statement, a video um, on Sunday, um, and the video was him telling his congregation that um, that everyone is invited, and he would even love to preach for Trump sitting right there. Um, and that he, the invitation is open to the candidates, and now he said, you know, they're starting to say, yeah, we're coming. So Buttigieg is the one that wants to come. He also missed a um, poverty panel that the other um, Democratic presidential candidates attended um, from Barber's organization. So Anyway, he's coming to Barber's Church in Goldsboro, and he's just going to sit there. He's not talking, and like when Kamala Harris came to Durham, she was a special guest at St. Joseph AME, um, and she actually gave, gave a short speech. But um, uh, Buttigieg will just be there, um, and then they'll have like a discussion um, afterwards with people that are impacted by poverty, and then... Um, uh, they want to hear, or Barber said he wants to hear what Buttigieg's um, plans are. So the other thing, too, is that Buttigieg is polling real low among uh, black voters in South Carolina anyway, and South Carolina gets more attention um, than North Carolina in the primary season, but it's a different state. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, so I had a story today about not just Buttigieg coming and, and picking this black church, but what does this mean when um, Democrats are trying this tactic, among others, to reach black voters, which are, of course, a um, very significant voting bloc in the party. Uh, and some of it, I talked to Jay Cameron Carter, who's with Indiana University now and had been at Duke for a long time. And Carter said, you know, you show up around election time and you wave for the photo op, you're just using black people. And we said it's ridiculous. Uh, however, he said um, it's a wise political move to reach people um, at um, black congregations because um, those churchgoers are also the people that are more likely um, to be voters. Um, so it's both a good thing, but also you are using them. Um, and so that's probably why Barber said that um, Buttigieg is welcome to sit in the pew and listen uh, to everyone else, but not to speak himself. Um, and Buttigieg also visited uh, a black church in South Carolina. So this is a tactic he's trying. It's where, the, um, it's where a lot of black voters are, but not all of them. Carter told me, um, he's a theologian and, and professor. He said that, um, what about the Black Lives Matter generation? And like all um, Americans, um, you know, those that are church skew older. Um, and so how are you appealing to everybody else? So that's something that Buttigieg and everyone else would need to do. And I also talked to them, um, him and, and another local pastor about um, why is Biden polling well with black voters? And it's kind of the same thing of like why he's polling well with everybody because he was vice president and everybody knows him. Um, as far as black voters, he was the vice president of the first black president in the country. So people give him um, a little more room. They're familiar with him. 
they might see that he's um, open to listening and trying. Um, so that's why Biden is, is getting that. Um, so we'll see. They also said, you know, that it's still early um, to tell. And, and Reverend Washington, who's pastor of this um, politically active church, Mount Warren Baptist in Durham, uh, said that, you know, once you're in the, you know, in the ballot booth, like you're, it, that's different than what you like say, say in the poll, as far as like when it comes down to um, who they'll choose. And, and once the field is narrowed, um, and we'll see if everyone sticks around to the primary or, or drops out. So, but that South Carolina poll even included a candidate that isn't even in the race anymore with um, better work. So, so we'll see how it goes. Um, and Carter also said that um, Harris and Cory Booker don't get a pass just because they're black. Like, just because you're black doesn't mean you get the black vote. Um, so you also have to prove to people different issues um, that are important to both the African-American community, but, but everybody. Um, economic issues and um, policing is one um, also that Carter mentioned. So I thought it was we'll see. interesting that uh, Carter talked to you about... Uh, Black voters' view of Buttigieg's sexuality because we've had some reporting uh, that focus groups in South Carolina among black voters um, had some negative things to say about it and um, could be a problem for him in South Carolina among black voters. Um, Carter wasn't having it. No, he doesn't. He doesn't buy it. And again, that's you know one state and one group of people that you talk to these you know focus groups and and like any poll any sample it's not it's not everybody and he says um no he doesn't buy it and he thinks it's just another way of um criticizing black people basically and finding like oh they're not comfortable with this and he's like their black voters aren't any less comfortable with Buttigieg being gay than than white voters and you could look at um Christianity um, denominations, like every, some people are very cool with LGBT people being um, married and in leadership positions and clergy and other ones definitely are not. Um, and that's kind of the same thing. So if you look at um, the black voters from a religious standpoint, you know, people in an AME church are going to feel differently than people in a missionary Baptist church maybe. So he says the statistics don't show it. Um, and this is somebody who's an expert in African-American studies. So he knows what he's talking about. Um, and he says he's, he's not buying it, that that's not any more than, um, than anyone else. So the last thing we should talk about is the governor's race. And there are some big developments uh, this, in this past week there where um, Dan Forrest and Roy Cooper are now uh, going head to head over the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Um, and this has been building for a while, but um, this week Forrest got some ammunition uh, in the form of a new report that came out from... Uh, investigators who the legislature had hired and Republicans had directed to be hired um, to to investigate Cooper and his role in giving uh, in uh, his administration's awarding of a pipe of a permit to the pipeline as well as um, a fund that um, the pipeline is going was going to pay into um, for environmental and economic um, mitigation of the potential problems caused by the pipeline. Republicans say, and, and investigators seem to conclude, that that uh, these two things were improperly tied together, right? Right. So the report um, said that Cooper did, you know, use his influence, but not for personal gain. And so this, you really can't separate this from politics because it's the 
Republicans that wanted the investigation that have been pushing for this. And Cooper is, of course, a Democrat and um, Forrest is a Republican. And, the, you know, the, those that push for the investigation and these, um, these sessions are Republicans. And it's just very, you know, the Democrats will say, well, who cares if Cooper um, did this? He, it's for the environment. Like, why wouldn't you want a mitigation fund for the environment? Like, and so they don't care, you know, and then the Republicans are like, of course we care. He's using his influence for this. And what was the timing of it, you know, with this fund and what the fund was going to be for? And, um so, and then the next day, Forrest says, like, oh, he wants an FBI investigation. Um, because the report did leave open, like, oh, well, maybe there could be something criminal. We don't know. That's not our job to do it. So Forrest seized on that um, and is calling for it. But again, Forrest is a Republican. Cooper's a Democrat. Forrest, um, you know, is, is challenging him um, in the race. And so you really can't um, separate it in, entirely from, from just the party politics of, of, of everyone. The investigation itself was independent, um, so that does carry more weight. Um, but again, like with an election year, I think this would be different if this came out even like six months ago. Um, but just looking to 2020, like everything is like in the, um, you have to look at it through the lens of 2020. So where it'll go from here, um, I don't know. I mean, it'll be used with, a, you know, Cooper's office as, defended, um, you know, many in every way, like, oh, you know, like, you know, there, there wasn't wrongdoing here. And, you know, this is just all about, um, about politics. And I mean, everything is, is about it. So if this happened, you know, after an election or the timing of it is just, there's no, there's no way to separate it. So, but it didn't make Cooper look good. I mean, there's, um, there's no way around that. But again, like those that, if it's, it doesn't make him look good, maybe among independents and Republicans, but the Democrat response is like, oh, well, it was for the environment and, you know, what's the big deal? He didn't personally benefit. Um, but it's also the fact that, you know, you need to follow the rules and orders of how how things go when you, um, you know, when you proceed as a, as a government entity with this stuff. And then there's the whole pipeline itself, which a lot of people don't like, you know, period, so. And it, it seems like there's there's still some unanswered questions, right? So about um, you know who originally um, asked for this fund. That seems like that's still kind of left out there. Yes. Um, and um, you know, and 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 some of the sequence of um, when Cooper uh, talked to Duke about it and mm-hmm. who suggested yeah. it. So yeah, that right. seemed, um, and the report showed that there is no. There's no paper trail that says that, you know, how exactly this came together. Um, and that sort of is just out there now. Like, whether or not is, is that criminal, um, you know, it left it as no. But, of course, um, you know, Forrest wants people to testify under oath for it. And, and, again, it's, you know, would Forrest do this if he wasn't um, running against Cooper? Yeah. All right. Well, let's leave it there, and we will take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Headliner of the Week. 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 Who's hot? And we're back with Headliner of the Week. Will Doran, who's your headliner? 
Um, my headliner is uh, Chad Wolf because it's just a great name. Uh, <laughs> he is the new uh, head of the Department of Homeland Security, and he was in Raleigh on Monday with um, basically just a, a who's who of Republican politicians. Uh, Dan Forrest, Dan Bishop, Mark Walker, Tim Moore, plenty of other uh, Republican sheriffs and uh, Republican uh, legislators from around the state, and they were here to talk about uh, immigration, and specifically the sheriffs in handful of North Carolina's biggest counties who are no longer working with ICE. The legislature uh, passed a bill, or yeah, passed a bill uh, that would have forced those sheriffs to work with ICE, uh, which Governor Cooper vetoed and basically said, no, it should be up to local sheriffs to decide their own local policies, and if voters elected them, you know, based on them not wanting to work with ICE, then they should be able to not work with ICE. Uh, so now the guy who is in charge of ICE was in Raleigh to uh, to slam Cooper over that, to slam the sheriffs over that. Um, Cooper, of course, says that this is all just, you know, a politically mo motivated, uh, you know, nothing burger, <laughs> essentially, that, uh, that there are already, you know, plenty of laws in place to keep cities safe and that it helps, uh, it actually helps fight crime. Uh, if sheriffs have more trust in from local Hispanic communities and can work with them to, to get tips and leads and things like that. So there's, you know, just this big divide. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, North Carolina is kind of drawing the ire of the Trump administration. And we're, you know, President Trump is now sending down cabinet officials like Chad Wolf uh, to basically come excoriate uh, Cooper and some of the Democratic sheriffs here. Okay. Chad Wolf in the hat for a headline of the week. We will see how long Chad Wolf lasts as Homeland Security. Uh, he is President Trump's fifth Homeland Security director in his three years as president. They and they're all acting, right? They never get confirmed. I think Kristen Nielsen was okay. confirmed. And I think John Kelly was confirmed okay. as well. Um, but uh, Mr. Wolf has not uh, been confirmed yet. Uh, and maybe that was part of the reason why he was down here, too, to gin up some, uh, some news coverage and get some senators on his side for what's probably going to be a tough confirmation battle in the Senate uh, for his confirmation. And then if you keep your job after that, maybe, maybe not. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They don't last long. <laughs> All right. Don Vaughn, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to go with the quote unquote African-American voter um, who like, it's, it's just people there. Nobody, you know, it's not a monolithic voting group, but also I think in the, um, the primaries, obviously, like the presidential election ones, you have you know Trump versus where the Democrat nominee is going to be interesting. But I think a lot of the more interesting things are at the primary level, both state and federal. Um, and you can't just uh, take for granted that black voters are going to vote Democrat. Um, and which Democrat are they going to vote for? You know, and it's just being black. You don't. It's not a given. Um, you're even if you have majority like white voter support, um, you still need a significant. Um, part of the population of this country to support you. And I think it forces primary candidates to really speak about um, what are you going to do? What do you, what, where are you on these issues instead of just blanket statements? So I think you really get down into the policy discussion when you're at the primary level than um, once it's the general race. Like there's not as much policy. It's, you know, people either like Trump or not, as in they'll just vote for the opponent, you know, if, it, if they're not already a Trump supporter. Um, so I think the primary, the Democratic primary is much more interesting. Um, and I think it's 
Um, we'll see how, how it turns out where they try to appeal again with Buttigieg, trying to appeal with um, Barber's congregation. And again, like showing up at a church the way J. J. Cameron Carter said and waving is just using black people. That's not going to get you elected. Um, you actually have to have some substance to, um, to why um, people should vote for you. So I'm going to say the African-American voters. Okay. African-American voters. And Colin Campbell. I'm going with uh, Senator Floyd McKissick, uh, one of the longer serving members of the state Senate. He's been there uh, as a Democrat from Durham since 2007. He finally ended the uh, will he or won't he this week. There had been some speculation about whether he was actually going to leave the Senate because he uh, was nominated by the governor months and months ago to join the NC Utilities Commission, which helped set electric rates, among other things. and it took forever for him to get confirmed. And when he was finally confirmed on October 31st, he comes out with a Facebook post that says, actually, I'm having second thoughts. I might want to stay in the Senate. Some people are encouraging me to do so. I'm going to give it some thought. Um, and in the mean, meantime, uh, the other two people who were uh, nominated and confirmed at the same time took their seats on the Utilities Commission, and no one was really sure, is McKissick going to get sworn in? Is he going to change his mind? Uh, he ended the speculation. Uh, on Monday of this week uh, by saying you know, he'd given it a lot of thought and he's decided that uh, his best step right now is uh, the Utilities Commission, but he sort of worded the statement in a way that made it seem like that might not be his last stop. We could see him in a, in a mm-hmm. different role uh, in the future, possibly running for something else or, uh, or holding another leadership post in the state. But for now, uh, Floyd McKissick uh, leaving the NC Senate after uh, uh, well over a decade uh, joining the Utilities Commission. And we talked about McKissick at the top of the show when before you walk, walked in, but we didn't really just talk about that will he or won't he, won't he aspect of it, which is kind of interesting. What what do you, what do you think he was weighing on that? I mean, it's a it's a uh, a little bit better paying job, I would think. Yeah, and I think he just you know the the power of being in the Senate. Uh, you know, I think there's a big push, obviously, next year for Democrats to take control. Um, if they were successful in doing so, I think he would be in line for one of the top leadership posts. Um, so I think he was probably trying to game out all the scenarios and um, figure out where his his best um, fit was going to be and, and ultimately decided to go for the Utilities Commission. But had he not done that, then that resets the whole process and, the, and Governor Cooper has to then go through and deal with legislative confirmations that take forever uh, for another pick for the Utilities Commission. So I'm sure Cooper was saying like, hey, why don't you um, do the thing I uh, offered you months ago so that I don't have to go through this again. That was pretty on brand for McKissick, though. Just yeah, I'm sure, he, I'm sure he asked a lot of questions of a lot of people <laughs> and got as much information as he possibly could before he made his decision. What he does on every single yeah. bill you know, when he goes just, to the legislature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when does he, we don't know yet exactly when he resigns yet, and does that have any implications for whether they're suddenly able to, uh, uh, to override or not? Um, they, no, well, they'll have to appoint someone to a seat, but he doesn't have to um, be sworn into the commission yet, and he's got some time on that. And yeah. I asked him, or the, it was like one of his long, I was talking earlier about his long goodbyes, and and he's like, oh, I don't know, like when it works out, and that's when the swearing it'll be, and he has some, you know, say about yeah. that. Yeah, so, he didn't put a date in his announcement, even yeah, though it was super long yesterday. Which is totally so. McKissick. So he yeah. can do it tomorrow, he can do it in six months, McKissick's going to yeah. do what he wants But if he does in the next couple of weeks, I mean, the legislature's not coming back till mid-January, so that's plenty right. of time for the Durham Democrats to mm-hmm. figure out who they want and get that uh, approved by the And government. I think they'll probably just um, appoint whoever they want to actually run, I would think, instead of like a, a placeholder and then 
during politics. So they could help decide the uh, the primary then. Uh, if the if they sort of pick and choose from among the yeah if they end up um, I mean like I said before Durham is all blue except the five five red people you know Republicans there um, so they'll um, so their PACs are very powerful and depending on really like their their PAC endorsements and like I said um, Freelon already has the um, current mayor's endorsement and if they decide. Um, that he's the one that they want and the party appoints him and then he also runs, you know, but, um, but again, Natalie Murdoch, she's an elected official too. She is, um, I would say just as, um, prominent a political figure as, um, as Pierce Freelon in the, in the Bull City. So, um, who knows? And again, because candidate filing is Monday, there might be surprises. I'm overly excited about that. That should have been my headliner of the week. Sorry. I'm going to that next one. Filing day. Yeah. Filing is a surprise. And last but not least, uh, Brian Murphy, who's your headliner? I'm going to stick with the state Senate and uh, pick state Senator Erica Smith. Uh, she's running for the North. She's running for the U.S. Senate um, in the Democratic primary. Most people, I think, thought all the action was going to be on the Republican side uh, with Senator Tom Tillis getting gar- uh, self-funded primarily self-funded challenger in Garland Tucker. But the real excitement seems to be on the Democratic side. Uh, Smith is leading um, in a couple of polls, including a Fox News poll that came out recently. She's leading Cal Cunningham, who has the support of the of the national Democrats, uh, as well as many, many endorsements from local Democrats. Um, I don't think most people thought that Erica Smith would put up much of a challenge against uh, such a well-funded challenger in Cal Cunningham, but she appears to be leading in the polls. We talked about black voters earlier. She's an African-American woman running in the Democratic primary, uh, where African-American women in particular make up a large portion of the voters. Um, it'll be interesting how this plays out uh, over the next couple months, but uh the Erica Smith is, is seems to be mounting a, a pretty serious challenge despite some limited financial uh, support at the moment um, against Cal Cunningham. Okay, and Erica Smith in the hat for headliner of the week. Um, well, this has been the Floyd McKissick podcast here, um, starting and finishing with a lot of talk uh, about Senator McKissick. So Senator McKissick is our headliner of the week, and uh, Colin is our winner this week. Uh, That's it for Domecast. Uh, For Colin Campbell, Brian Murphy, Don Vaughn, and Will Doran, I'm Jordan Schrader. Happy Thanksgiving, and catch us again on Filing Week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 